This is Dropout Nation. I'm Rashawn Biddle. Today, on the road, I join together with a group of experts to discuss integration and school reform. Where do we go from here? Um, thanks, thanks for sticking with us tonight, and I hope you all enjoyed the film. And I'm really excited to be talking with our expert panelists today. Thank you so much all for, for coming out. I think you all bring such interesting perspectives to this discussion, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging right in. And so, um, to my left here is Laura Wilson Phelan. She's the executive director and founder of Kindred, and she has some little clips around, so you all should definitely follow them as, uh, as, along with LTLT. Um, and uh, Laura is also currently an elected representative of the DC State Board of Education. Um, so thank you, Laura, for joining us tonight. Um, Rashawn uh, Biddle is the uh, editor and publisher of Dropout Nation. He is an award-winning journalist and has written several special projects revealing the depths of the nation's education crisis. So thank you, Rashawn, for joining us tonight. Um, Triopa Green Washington is the director of special initiatives at the College of Education at Bowie University. She has a very extensive uh, background in education. You should read all of that in her bio. And she is also the sister of Ernest Green, who was mentioned in the film as the first graduate of Little Rock Nine. Um, uh, lastly, we have uh, Richard Kallenberg. He is the senior fellow at the Century Foundation. He has great expertise in the area of socioeconomic integration, has been extensively on the issue, published several books, many articles, and is really seen as a true expert on this issue. And so I encourage you all to read their bios and, and interact with them a little bit after the panel. And so I guess we'll just jump right in and I'd like to start with just sort of your general thoughts on, on the film. We just watched Teach Us All. I'm, I'm curious your reactions from your different vantage points. And Triopia, I'd really like to start with you. Um, you bring a deep personal perspective to this film. Um, and I, I wanted to start with getting some of your reactions to the storylines and the perspectives that were presented. Well, I, I have to say at first, of course, the first segment was very personal to me. In fact, uh, I just noticed the house from which the nine were emerging was my house that I grew up in in Little Rock. So, so in fact, my son was sitting behind me. He said, that's Grandma's house. But uh, certainly, the what you heard in the film was a great summary of the experiences of the nine. Uh, I grew up uh, prior to the integration of Little Rock Central High School, and again, it was a, a different situation. But uh, the just to say a little bit about about that that year, um, it was a challenging year, particularly for my brother, because he was the only senior. And in addition to combating the daily strife that each of them endured, uh, he had to pass his classes. And when you, you look back, uh, again, having come from uh, schools, schools, of course, were segregated in the South prior to uh, 57. Uh, he 
talks, well, we don't talk about it a lot, but when I hear him speak to students, uh, I get a smattering of, of the things that, that, that happen. But one of the things, for instance, uh, and when you look at the, the full contour of the focus of the film, diversity, equity, and so forth, uh, one of the teachers who was openly hostile to him was his physics teacher. And of course we know physics is not the easiest course in the world anyway. Uh, but uh, again, there were people who, uh, who sought to tutor him, doctors who helped him with that. Uh, I, I just, in fact, I was sitting here, just attended the 60th anniversary of the integration of Little Rock Central High School. Uh, in September, four days were held to commemorate. And one of the things, and, and I thought about what the young man said uh, toward the end, each of the nine, and again they were 15, 16 year olds in 57, each of them has contribute, contributed a very successful life to this country. And I, I guess the bottom line is, and this is what I think our students need to understand, and Ernest often in his speeches tells students, everybody's going to have a Little Rock moment in their lives. And what the outcome is what you determine it to be. But I will say that for the nine that you saw uh, portrayed in the film, each of them has finished college. Each, most of them are retired, unlike me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they have all had professional careers. And one of the most, you know, you think about outcomes. And when people experience things, all of us have experienced things, some of us longer than others. But uh, at the uh, anniversary, as part of the anniversary, uh, and I'll invite you if you want to look at this after, um, there was a panel, children of the Little Rock Nine. And the question that was posed to them was, what did your parents' experiences, how did your parents' experiences impact your lives? And I think as we look through, and I think of all the students in the film, all of them had various experiences in New York, in Los Angeles, in Little Rock. But the bottom line is what, what you make of it, how you influence others in addition to yourself. And, and I, I, I guess the outcome of the 60th anniversary was that, yeah, it, 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 it worked. It, 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 it came out okay. Uh, so I feel this film has a powerful impact. And it really, um, we, we, we haven't solved the issues yet. That's very obvious. And some things, unfortunately, are, we are, history repeats itself. And we have to be aware of that. But uh, I, I, I feel that the film has identified several areas that we just need to continue uh, to work on. But I, again, that's the, the first segment is, is, is very special. And, and I will say one more thing. If you notice the statues of the nine, 
there are nine foot bronze statues on the Capitol grounds. Little Rock is the only Capitol that has uh, commemoration of the Civil Rights Movement on the Capitol grounds. Uh, when the statues were erected, each of the nine unveiled their own statues and the statues are placed in full view of the governor's window. So whoever becomes governor into perpetuity will have to look out on those statues. Thank you. So Laura, um, Trivia just, just brought this up, but your work with Kindred focuses around parental empowerment, relationship building, cross-parent networks. This came up a little bit in the film, not too much, certainly wasn't the focus of the film. I'm wondering if you can talk about why you believe the work of Kindred is so critical uh, in this movement. So the film touches a bit on the root causes of segregation, which is racism, institutional, personal, internalized, and if you, at least this is the lens which, with which I saw the film, was looking at it through what the root causes are of the essential symptom that is manifested in segregation. And I don't think there's any shortcut that's going to address mindsets. I think it, and the kids were talking about this and so were some of the, the educators, that at the end of the day, until we build empathy, true empathy with one another, I don't think we can expect that to shift, no matter what laws you put in place. I think that regulations help to push a standard that's expected in a society in one direction. But if you look at what is happening today, in 2017, you still see families, especially white families, continuing to pursue pathways towards segregation in their schools. And so, you know, that, that's just illustrative of the fact that people are super afraid of each other. We're so afraid to feel awkward and guilty and shame that we isolate ourselves and we purchase lots of isolation. If we think about how we got here today, I had the option of taking a car. That's purchasing my isolation so I don't have to interact with people who are different from me. I purchase different things. And those who have economic wealth can continue to purchase that. And it, what it allows us to do is live in segregated communities without interacting in very deep ways. And what I, I of course, was like listening for in the film, and I, I wasn't disappointed, was someone um, said that it, it, schools where are, which are desegregated offer an opportunity to start to address it. That, that's a, it's a proximity opportunity, right? Where we could actually do something with it or not do something with it. Because if you actually look at schools that have been desegregated, you have instance after instance of second-tier segregation within those schools, less opportunity for children of color. And so even when you put people in the same building, the equality of opportunity is still not present. And so it will not be present, our belief is, until we address the core issues of mindsets. And so what Kindred does is exactly that. We build relationships between parents of diverse backgrounds in small groups, because that's how relationships are built. And this is not uh, something that, you know, the funding community is super psyched about, because that is an expensive model. 
It takes time. You're not gonna, I'm not going to be able to give you 10,000 retweets and 6,400 texts that got sent to produce what outcome. No, it's relationship building. It's empathy. It's the stuff that matters and shifts mindsets. And I did see elements of that throughout the film, and I did see elements of the importance of family and community in promoting those ideals and shifting mindsets. So I, I was happy to, to see those elements throughout. Sean, you've written extensively on many educational issues. Um, you have written also on the issue of school segregation. Um, and in addition to issues like the school to prison pipeline and ineffective teachers, um, I'm wondering if you would just spend a few minutes talking about um, Dropout Nation and the connections you see across these, very edu these various education crisis issues that we're currently facing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are a dropout nation. I mean, if we are being honest, and I'm blunt when I say this, folks, you know, as an aside, there was a discussion about college and whether all kids should go to college or not. And you have a secretary of education who said, well, they shouldn't all go to college. To which the response I have to give is, well, 64% of fourth graders can't read above, read above basic levels. They're either below basic, or as measured by NAEP, or they're at basic, which means they can barely read. They're not proficient, which one of my writers says, that is grade level, grade, proficient is grade level. And so guess what? They're not going to college anyway, so why are, you, why are we arguing this point when we should be focusing on making sure that all children go to college? And what we see here, I always say this, when we, we, we don't have a crisis of segregation. This is the big lie. We don't have a crisis of segregation. There are lots of places in the world where they're segregated, where there are no diversity, and kids learn, and they do well, and everything else. We have charter schools in this country where they're mostly black, or mostly Latino, and I'm not going to say all of them do a great job because a lot of them should be shut down, along with a lot of traditional public schools. But there's a good number of them that only educate black children, only educate Latino children, only educate Asian children, and they do a great job. There are rural schools in America where I wouldn't send my child anywhere. I wouldn't put them anywhere near that rural school. That school is going to destroy my kid. And not just because of any sort of implicit bias, but because they're just a terrible, they're terrible schools. Nobody is escaping from those schools. They are trapped in their communities. We see this in West, go to West Virginia, you will find this. We don't have a crisis of segregation. What we have is a crisis of inequality. And that is a problem that results from this country's original sin. We imported people and made them slaves. And when some folks decided to get together, a, white, a few white guys and some black folks, some black slaves, Bacon's Rebellion, we... We had some folks who said, we're gonna keep these folks separated. 
and we're going to keep black people enslaved. We're going to keep enslaving black people. Sometimes it comes in the form of actual slavery. Sometimes it comes in the form of Jim Crow. Sometimes it comes in the form of a bullet in your head as you're walking down the street or being choked by a, by a police officer. Or you're getting suspended by a teacher and a school principal. And until we address that problem, it doesn't, we can talk about integration all day. We have plenty of integrated schools where there is no equality whatsoever. It's all just a bunch of black, a bunch of black kids or a bunch of white kids sitting around with each other and they're still eating in separate tables and they don't take the same AP courses. My wife can tell you this because she went to Little Rock Central High School. My father-in-law can tell you because he was the vice principal of Little Rock Central High School. He was at the 60th anniversary too, so we, we were talking about it. So, and you know, we're, and we, we understand this. And so if you look just in DC, and not to take a whole bunch of time, we got, I looked at 10 districts in DC. On average, these 10 districts meted out one or more out-of-school suspensions to 6.7% of black students, three times the level for Latino students, seven times the level for white and Asian students. We have 10 districts. These 10 districts we looked at, 2,707 kids were arrested or referred to juvenile courts. We're talking, and the rate is, on average, we're talking about, you know, only four of these 10 districts send no kids over to the, over to these, over to juvenile courts or, into, or have them arrested. One of them is Prince George's County, where I live. The only one that's majority black, by the way, at this point. On average, we're talking about 1.4% of black kids being arrested or put into juvenile detention. And that is six, seven times greater than the rate for white kids. Now, no, we shouldn't put, I don't know any reason why outside of maybe a kid does something absolutely horrific that they should be in jail or in juvenile courts in the first place. They're terrible places for kids to be. They, once they get into those places, they will almost never get out. And then we know that even if they're integrated, we have to accept the reality that we have policies and practices, suspension and expulsion policies that make sure that we're not treating kids equally. And this is a reflection of policies. It's also a reflection of mindsets. There was a study done in 2008 by a guy named John Wallace at the University of Pittsburgh. He looked at the number of kids who were likely to be referred, just referred to the dean's office. Black men in 10th grade were 30% more likely to be referred than white students and 300 times more likely to be suspended for the same issues. And we're not talking about major issues. We're talking about the kid was, this, was being a kid, which means if you have any at home, you know every now and then they are unruly, misbehaved, and are not the nicest and not very nice. I mean, it's just what it is. And so if we don't address those issues, those mindsets, if we don't address that problem, that we are, it doesn't matter whether I ever see you. 
it doesn't matter whether I see, I know I know that you're white or black or I've ever seen a black person or a white person that every human being that I see is a human being and deserves respect we're not going to get very far so you know to me segregation is just okay we know that now how about the reasons why we, why our kids are treated unequally? Rick, I'm so glad that you're following that. I I just I want to hear what you think about. So so you've written extensively right on the virtues of socioeconomic integration in particular, and I'm and I love the the question that um, Rashawn just posed around the need to address inequity at the forefront. And I'm curious if, can you connect those dots for us and, and uh, share a little bit more on where you perhaps think there might be opportunities in research to um, address some of these gaps or to um, bring, some of, bring some of these different educational issues together in a way that might work and get us to a more equal place? Absolutely. Um. And, and let me just say, uh, reflect for a moment on the on the film, and then and then get to your your questions. So, um, I saw the film a, a while back, um, and was alternatively uh, inspired and discouraged uh, at the same time. I mean, the portions about the Little Rock Nine are incredibly inspiring, and the uh, the courage with which. Um, Ernest Green and others uh, took to the task of integrating uh, the schools to make our country better uh, is, uh, is, is, is true heroism. I was also really inspired by uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones talking about the fact that when we did integrate schools for a brief period of time, we saw uh, the scores on the National Assessment for Educational Progress, the gap between African-American and white students closed faster than, than we've, uh, we've ever seen. So there, there is, is that. Um, on the other hand, I found it very discouraging in the sense that there was, uh, I thought, some dissonant notes um, in the film where there's a a celebration of the effort to attack teachers and teachers unions uh, and kind of the right to um, have due process uh, before you for your discipline and so that, that Vergara case which was talked about as kind of the new Brown versus Board of Education actually had nothing to do with integration uh, and it was it was really going after going after teachers taking us down a, a blind alley so um, so I found that discouraging I, um, I I guess I like parts of the film and 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 not not others um, but I think it's symptomatic of the dilemma that we face that if you ask social scientists about integration uh, the vast majority will say when it's done well and, and I think Rashawn you're absolutely right it can't just be throwing kids together and you, and, and you made this this point as well that uh, you you need to uh, provide students an equitable environment once once the schools are integrated but but when that happens in the right way uh, that low-income students 
uh, students from marginalized communities can do amazing things. And so we know that uh, disadvantaged students who are in economically mixed schools are two years ahead of uh, disadvantaged students stuck in segregated high poverty schools. So it's not that the kids can't learn, it's that they are not being given, given the right environment. And so I'm, I'm, uh, that's, that's one reality. The other reality is that uh, because people think, know that this is politically difficult to pull off, they give up and do things like you know, attack teachers and teachers unions instead. Uh, and so we saw both both of those aspects, I think, in the in the film. Um, in terms of the um, you know the, the gap in research you're mentioning, Jenna, um, I think we need more research on how communities can accomplish integration in a way that uh, that is fair, uh, as Laura and Rashad have been suggesting. To, um, where all communities are respected, uh, where teachers are trained to capitalize on diversity and bring out uh, the best in all students. Uh, there's this, this wonderful metaphor I heard recently where people talked about uh, the way every child brings a little suitcase of experiences to the classroom. Uh, and some teachers in the, uh, handle that poorly. And they say, you know, put, put away your suitcase. You're, that's not really relevant. You're here to learn in the environment that we've created. Uh, and others invite them to open up the suitcase and, um, and, and share their experiences. And, and in those cases, everyone can learn. Middle class kids learn from low income students and vice versa, and students of different races. So, so when done right, um, I think it can, it can have a, a really big impact. Um, the, my hope is that out of this disastrous election that we had, um, we'll be woken up and, and people will see that our democracy is under threat in part because we let a demagogue uh, capitalize on segregation and the fact that many of us may not have uh, good friends who are, um, who are Muslim or many students might go to school where they don't have friends who are Mexican immigrants and therefore you can have someone run for president demonizing these groups and, and get away with it. I think we're not going, I mean, the, the, the message of this group has been so powerful. Until we uh, learn together, we'll never live together as a, as a unified society. So, um, so I think we, we have to find ways to move forward politically. So um, as we mentioned in some of our um, earlier remarks, we're going to be exploring several key areas tomorrow that I wanted to draw out a little bit in this panel. And so we are going to be talking tomorrow about the role of parents, different school models, and also housing policy. And so Laura, I'd like to start with you. Um, without giving too much away that you plan to share, um, wondering from the parent perspective, what do you see as the single most critical barrier um, to the inequality that um, that Rashawn was just talking about, and and perhaps also share what do you think an opportunity for promoting um, more inequality or more equality in the district would be? 
promoting more equality, <laughs> we should dramatically shift how we're spending resources. But, but I think in terms of thinking about desegregation in our schools, there, I, I see two primary barriers. One is we are so socialized to be biased. And I mean, you just look at just a minute of television and you'll see the images that we portray of black people in this country and people of color more generally are almost uniformly negative. You know, you do see pockets of, of television that are not promoting that image. Or you read the newspaper and it's the same thing. It's so deeply socialized. It's so socialized that my little kids, even when I try to raise them as anti-racist, they are absorbing some of those messages. And it's really difficult. It takes an extraordinary individual to rise above his or her socialization. Right? Like, that, that, those are the people we put in movies like Teach Us All. And, and then we hang our hat on those people believing that, yep, that, see, it is possible, right? We just all can overcome it. But if you just look at the general population and how we all operate together, where we choose to live, how we choose our schools, how we choose to spend our money, the things that we value, the ways that we spend our time, very few people rise above their socialization. And, and so to believe that, that we can't, that we'll be able to do that without specific interventions, I think is a really misplaced belief, which is why Kindred started, is to create space that's intentional, to help people acknowledge and, and understand the air we're breathing, that socialization, and step out of it from all sides. And the second thing that I think is really challenging, I am a, a believer in the value of some of the test scores that have been cited today, the NAEP scores, or here in DC, the PARC scores. I think that putting a spotlight in one way on academic progress of children as measured by this one measure is important and it's valuable. However, I do think from people from my culture, from the white culture, the white upper middle class background, someone who has resources and can choose our schools, it can be a tremendous barrier to actually bringing families together in schools because the idea of a good school is almost 100% um, associated with the test score right now in the city because that is what we have promoted as school excellence and, and the vast majority of how we've rated schools is placed on test scores. And that isn't because the people in charge, and I'm one of them now, believe that test scores are the end-all be-all. It's because we have so little else that we actually measure. So who wants to go out and measure empathy? I do, but try to find a mass of other people that want to measure empathy. Look at our university system. Are they actually asking our students and measuring empathy when they are admitting students? No. And it derives from that. I, I call it the, the, the Harvard syndrome, that as soon as a family, and this is like I'm speaking at least for my, my culture, and I know it's not uniformly everybody, but you have a kid, and then you're like, what do I have to do to get that kid into Harvard? Right? They can't go to my neighborhood school because then they're doomed for life. And if you spent any time on these parent listservs in Washington, D.C., you'll know I am not exaggerating that this is truly a worry, is that we're disadvantaging our kids because there's a school that doesn't have high test scores. And I think we have to dramatically interrupt that. Dramatically. We have to start talking about what is the value we want to instill in our children. And frankly, this election has highlighted the danger of not doing that. 
And, and so there is a silver lining. It, it's to wake up the foundations and the wealthy people that provide the resources for nonprofits and other groups to function, which are the groups that are pushing the mindset in this society. It's woken them up to the danger of not addressing empathy. We have a massive empathy gap in, in our country, and I think until we start talking about it, and especially the role that it plays between parents, we aren't going to, we'll be having the same conversation 50 years from now. Yeah. I love that you've brought up this empathy point, and Rashana, I wonder if you, you want to weigh in on that a bit, and, and the notion around, um, right, like good schools equaling good test scores, and how that is a proxy for some parents to measure, you know, whether or not they, they would want to send their kid there, and, you know, in, in the work that you've done, I'm, I'm curious uh, your reactions to what Lauren said. Well, I mean, here's the reality. The test scores, they reflect a reality that, you know, if the school you know, you, they reflect the reality. Now, of course, it ain't just the test scores, the growth, which is where we've done a terrible job in discussing, the, you know, the growth. The reality is we have low schools that have, that start off with low test scores, and they increase test scores by high levels, and they're doing a far better job than schools that are already at the high percentile. And the reality, and, you know, by the way, getting into this whole issue of Vergara, there's, Part of it is the reality, you know, as an aside, it wasn't an attack on teachers. It's the reality that we have, I'm going to be blunt, and I want to say bluntly, a white teachers union led by white people who protect mostly white teachers from the consequences of serving black children who are the majority, the black and Latino and Asian children who are the majority of kids in this country, protecting those teachers from the consequences of failure. And listen, I, at the end of the day, I don't really have, um, I don't want anyone to ever lose their job. Losing their job, losing jobs suck. And let's be real, parents, it's not for the teachers. A lot of these teachers were poorly served. They were trained poorly by ed schools that did, by ed school professors who didn't, who never taught in a classroom, who should have never, who should not be training kids, and training te training kids to teach kids. Remember, these are 22, 23 year olds going into classrooms. They're kids, and they're working with kids, and they are not good kids in terms of the talent and the empathy and the caring for every child that's required. So it's not all their fault, but I don't want those teachers teaching my kid. I don't want, I don't care what they look like, but let me tell you, listen, I go back and I say this, Martin Luther King had a very famous statement about integration. His view was he was not in love with it because he did not feel that he could trust white teachers to teach black children. And I hate to say it, but 50, 60 years later, he may not have been wrong. And it's not a fault, and again, and we have to be really honest about that. I mean, we, there's, we have a recent study that came out about, te about teacher discipline. 20 and also about teacher views about how well kids perform. 24% of white teachers thought that their black students would do okay and would be able to go to college. Just 24% of them. Just 24% of them. 
and we see the impact that they actually show. It's using date, long, longitudinal data that says, wait a minute, this has a great impact. These expectations have a terrible impact on black children. So, listen, hey, if there's a, uh, any way to get rid to get rid of teachers who don't belong in our classrooms, I'm for it. As long as we're getting rid of the right, the right bad, te- right bad teachers, because we've seen in New Orleans, they've also they, that was a terrible. What they did there was not necessarily right either. But back to the main point, and so back to the main point here about the issue of empathy. I, I'll, I'll turn this around a little bit. Part of the problem, and I don't speak for all black families, so there are going to be black families who love integration. Han, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she loves integration. That's fine. Um, there's others who are, there, there, there's a lot of us who don't. My wife, my wife is perfectly fine with, my kid, with our black child going to an all-black school. I went to an all-black school. I have done quite well. And the reality is for a lot of us, our problem with integration, and again, we don't oppose it. I have, there are, if you look at my wedding photo in my house, there are three white guys. They're my three closest friends. They are wonderful people. They're the only three white people at the, at the wedding. <laughs> and they were, my be- they were my groomsmen. The issue, we're fine with integration, but for us, integration always ends up being what a friend of mine, Darrell Bradford, always calls this proximity to whiteness issue. That is, if it's white, if it's run by white people, if it has white children in it, it's going to be great. And a lot of the issue in terms of you talk about the whole issue in D.C. And I, my wife reads D.C. Urban Mom and Dad, so too. So uh, a lot of it is that we don't they don't want to be near black children and they don't want to be near Latino children and they don't want to be near poor children. And this idea that if it's if it's white, it's right. If it's white, it's great. If it's white, it's going to work. Note, anyone who has ever been to Howard University and anyone who's ever been to a rural school, they know this is not true. White is not always excellent. And for us, for a lot of us, especially for us who work in spaces where there are oftentimes we are only the only black people. We're the only Latinos. We're the only Asians. We go into these worlds where it's in many ways, and it's not necessarily outwardly hostile. It's just kind of difficult. <laughs> and we go home and we're like, we're happy. We go into Prince George's County. We're like, or into our mostly black neighborhood. We're like, thank God we're home. <laughs> thank God we're home. And for us, why is it that in only way that our children should get a high quality education is it got to go into white spaces? Why isn't it that we don't provide the resources to mostly black schools? Let's keep in mind the reason why we have we pursued integration was not because civil rights leaders really wanted it. It was because Jim Crow school districts were never going to give the resources 
needed to black schools. That had a devastating impact. We pursued integration and we saw black schools in black neighborhoods get shut down. We saw black institutions that people you know, were attached to for whether for good or for ill shut down. For a lot of us who have gone through this, and I've been through the but I went to a black all black elementary school, I went to a mostly white junior high school, I went to a mostly Latino high school. We it's just not that's we're skept we, we we're tired of being told that the only way this we we should get a high quality education is if you know it's gotta look like it's gotta it can't be us. There's a reason why, for example, we have charter schools. One of the reasons is that in why you see some charter you see guys like a Steve Perry, you know, starting them. It's the idea that black people can put their kids in a black school where black children can learn and they see other black children learning and they have black teachers who are teaching them. And by the way, that's what one of the things we need to work on work on. We have a mostly white profession in this in the teaching ranks. White and you know, female. And right now, the way we have done this, which is a, a sort of institutional segregation, the system of basically saying you have to go through an ed school, you have to get a certain seg certification that enough data has shown doesn't actually correlate to performance. We need to open the doors up to a lot of folks who are, to a lot of people who are, who are black, who are Latino, who are Asian, many of whom have gotten professional degrees, many of whom love, would love to work with children in their 40s and their 50s. They're at that point where they're ready to do it and they can do it because they have the skills. They have the empathy. That but, situation. And, but they can't do it because, well, you have to go back to school. You're going to tell a lawyer who's making $200,000 a year that they need to go back to school for a job that pays them $50,000? <laughs> me tell you what my wife would tell you right now. No, that's not going to happen. And so we need to address those. We need to address those issues, those systemic forms of racism, as well as deal with the mindsets that we that are that our children have to deal with. They shouldn't have to. Because guess what? Bringing back to kids, your child should be able to go to a school and go to a teacher and the teacher loves them. Not the same way mama and daddy love them because, you know, you can't tolerate everything mama and daddy tolerates. But you love them and you know that you when they're being unloving, that they need more love and that they need more attention. And that's what we need. So that's just, but of course I'll defer to the experts. <laughs> thank you. Um, Rashawn, thank you for bringing up the, right, the, the many black eyes that we saw happen at, during integration, right? The, the laying off of teachers, um, that was, that was detrimental. Um, and so, turning to you, Triopia, I, you know, 
I'm wondering, you know, building building off of that, what do you see as some of the important lessons we can take away from the things that we got wrong that didn't go well um, to, to make sure that we're not making those mistakes again as we're pursuing um, equality, as we're pursuing empathy, as we're pursuing, you know, the things that we're talking about today and ensuring all kids have access to high-quality education? You know, as uh, I, I've been listening, uh, I was I, I wrote down a quote that my brother Ernest uh, made about the experience, and he said we realized in 1957 <clears throat> that this was not an easy journey. It was one in which we thought we were simply exercising our right to the best education that was available in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I think that kind of summarizes. Uh, the foundation from which the nine and other students around the country who became the first in their area, it wasn't so much about wanting to integrate, but wanting to experience the best in education. Uh, we often talk about uh, the fact, when, as I said, when I was in high school, I admit that I preceded him. Uh, I went to an all-black high school, and on Friday nights, our high school could use the stadium at Little Rock Central High School for football. And of course, we had to walk by this humongous, gorgeous, three-square-block-sized school. And as my brother said, as you walked by there, you knew that there was three times as much going on in that school, three, must, three times as much opportunity as there was in the other school where we were going. And so when the opportunity came, uh, he wanted just to have an opportunity to get some of what was in that larger school. The other thing I want to mention, not quite about this, but Again, uh, working in a college of education at Bowie State University, one of the things that we talk about every day and is of great concern is the lack of interest, I guess I'll call it, that young people have in becoming teachers. In the film, it clearly stated several times that the best thing that a student can have, and you just said it, is a good teacher. <laughs> and uh, of course, when I was coming along back in the olden days, uh, for black women, teaching and nursing were the professions. And if you didn't care for blood, <laughs> you certainly weren't going into nursing. But the teachers that I had and the teachers, my mother was a teacher, my aunt was a teacher, I always say could have been CEOs at any Fortune 500 company. The opportunities that exist now that students have to choose from compete with the desire to become teachers. But it is critical, it is critical that we have more good, and I agree with you, good teachers. 
uh, and I, I, I'll, I'll be self-serving. Bowie does graduate good teachers. <laughs> uh, in fact, the teachers are hired before they even graduate. But with that aside, it is, you know, we talk about STEM, we talk about all of the technologies that are going to need people to continue them. They can't read and write, which uh -huh. they learn in the first grade. They aren't going to get there. So we really, really, I mean, th this whole thing, uh, equity, diversity, success, depends upon children having a good education. And it starts early on. I was a kindergarten teacher, and I know what kindergarten children can learn. And really, I, I equate it to a house. If the house doesn't have a good foundation, I don't care what's built on top, it's going to topple over. Mm -hmm. So we, we really, really need to try to encourage. And of course, along with that comes the support that teachers need to have mm -hmm. financially and otherwise. And unfortunately, we are not, it's going from downhill rather than uphill, but we, 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 we need to do something about that. Rick, in addition to um, well-trained, diverse teaching force, what are some other ways that um, you think that we need to be careful moving forward in terms of promoting diversity and equity and inclusion in schools? Uh, do you have any other recommendations to build off of what um, Shirvia just shared? Yes, I think, um, I think for one thing we have to reframe this issue uh, so that people don't think that this is about, you know, white makes right. Because I agree with you, Rashawn, that, that's, that's basically a racist ideology. I mean, the reason that I'm for integrated schools is, is twofold. One is that in a diverse setting, students can learn from one another, uh, learn from differences, uh, differences of experience, uh, and get to know one another. So, so there's kind of a, uh, a desire for social cohesion. Um, but I'm also for integration because uh, it can promote social mobility. And, and the reason is connected not with black and white, but rather the, with rich and poor. So there are harms associated with concentrated poverty uh, of whatever race. I mean, there's, uh, there was a school in, in Louisville that was 50% black, 50% white. It was beautifully integrated by race. Uh, there wasn't a Latino population at that time. Um, and it was 100% poor. And this school struggled because concentrations of poverty, you know, 50 years of research suggests, uh, is, uh, do not provide a good learning environment for kids on average. Um, so, so I think one thing we have to do is make sure we're, we're clear on why integration is beneficial because it, it certainly can, uh, was never the case that there was something about the whiteness of classmates that would benefit African-American kids. That's, that's highly insulting um, to think that that, that would be true. Uh, so it's, it's the class segregation that is harmful educationally, and then, and then I think racial integration is beneficial for, uh, you know, 
for, for our society for, for lots of reasons. So, so we want to, um, we'd have to start by clearing up some of those, those misconceptions. Um, uh, I do think we need to try to find ways to find a more diverse teaching force. Um, right now, teachers are uh, overwhelmingly white and female and um, are not reflective of the student population, so I think that's important. I think we need better curriculum, uh, uh, like like Laura's been talking about, an anti-bias, anti-racist uh, curriculum has to be part of what we do right in, in promoting integration. Um, and um, and one other angle to talk about here may be uh, you know the question of housing, because integration that tackles housing segregation. Um, can deal with some of the difficulties of, of school integration by itself. So one of the objections people have had is, I don't want my child to be traveling long distances to go to an integrated school, and that's uh, on one level completely understandable. Um, and so if we can try to uh, pursue some new approaches to address housing segregation, then I think we can, um, we can make neighborhood schools uh, more more integrated. Uh, and I think we can, in, in that vein, we can build off of some of the success from the Fair Housing Act of 1968. We're about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of that legislation. Uh, it certainly hasn't um, done enough to integrate our communities, but if you look at the segregation level in 1970 and compare it to today uh, in residential neighborhoods, it's gone from the, the, the term that's used is the dissimilarity index. Uh, 100 is uh, complete apartheid, zero is integrated, and it's gone from 79 to a 59. So, so we've made some progress, not enough, but it's, it's headed in the right direction. And meanwhile, our class segregation is increasing. It's getting worse. So I think we some need some new tools um, to try to address address that as we think about kind of in integration in the future. I'd like to open it up to all of you if you have any other questions for our panel. We have about 10, 15 minutes left. Any thoughts, reactions, questions? What? How? Chris, I'm gonna oh. I'll ask And and I and believe me. Same way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I, I completely understand. My, you know, the response for a lot of lawyers would be, yeah, but in reality, a lot of lawyers would tell you, you probably don't need three years of law school either. I mean, in, 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 in essence, and a lot of what lawyers learn ends up being on the job. So it's in essence, a lot of lawyers would even tell you privately, yeah, three years of law school, probably we need to rethink law school. Uh, there's so there, there's a huge, so but you know, you know, my wife is a lawyer. It we we've had this com- we've had this conversation. It is a you know, so I'll push back slightly on that. But I will agree, you do need to. Ha- there are ways of making sure that teachers continually learn empathy. And again, I say it this way: we should not put anyone into a classroom until we put them in front of a child. Put that person in front of a child, just any child. You know, a child that look, does not look like them. Let me see how you behave with that child. If you can't pass the test, that simple test, I don't care how good you are at subject matter competence. No, don't, you don't belong here. Bye. Go. <laughs> you, shouldn't be, you shouldn't be here because if you can't work with this kid, I don't, I can't imagine how you're going to work with every other kid too. So, I mean, I push back, I agree and I push back at the same time, but I'm taking, but I'm taking some time from you. So get back to your, you know, your question. Yeah. My question is, um, where I see the biggest challenge is, and and teachers and administrators talk a lot about is, um, how do you start this conversation among the staff, among the administration? What does the administration, when they look, the leadership look to hire a teacher? And they want to raise an equity, you know, and I wrote down what I thought was a little bit about, you know. So what does the value of equity look like when it's and sound like in a school? And how do you hire the staff? So. in the situation where I became a teacher later in life after another profession. Uh, but at my school, we were having that conversation. We started that conversation last year, and we were calling it race and equity. Um, and we're looking at all diverse communities, not only the racial diversity, but also the sexual diversity. We're looking at everything. And what we're doing is we're, we have an organization that um, uh, kind of spearheads the conversation with us. Uh, and I had mentioned the organization to you before, uh, Teach to Learn. And, and actually, uh, I just joined like the spearheading um, little committee. Uh, because, like you're saying, it's a very difficult conversation, but it's a needed conversation. And so, like I said, we just plug away at it. We, you know, we, um, like I said, we have guidance, but 
that's all you do. I mean, and it starts from the top, okay? Because the uh, founder, director, and the principal are vested in this, okay? And because uh, we have uh, a diverse um, teaching staff, and these concerns were being um, expressed. And actually, they, I think it, the, it, it, there was an uh, administrator that initially um, expressed this concern. And a lot of the people, especially white people, had these blinders. You're not seeing, you know, uh, uh, how the uh, other races are feeling. Okay, because, I mean, you have, and I don't mean to, you know, be but there's this white privilege that, um, you know, it's in our society. So it's, the, the thing about it is, in the schools, to it, huh? to be able to, in order to be able to talk about it, you have to be able to own it, and to be able to own it, you have to talk about it. Exactly. But it's a process. It's a process. And, and again, having the guidance of this organization, which is, they're, they're working with a lot of different schools, a lot of different organizations. Because it's a microcosm of uh, the school is of a whole society's problem, you know. So, like I said, to me, it's just starting the conversations. But you have to have the willingness of the administration, the higher ups, to start it. As opposed to and all of your staff participate. Yes, it's mandatory. And actually, in the beginning, in our orientation during the summer. Uh, we had this organization come in, and uh, it was it was fantastic. And people were so relieved. It's like it's always that peak elephant in the room, you know. Like now, it's out in the open, and we're discussing these things. And like we were saying earlier, that um, blacks and whites. I mean, we all need to talk more, you know, because that's part of the problem. And like, like we're because we're not. Um, you know, communicating, the problems are going to stay there. Mm -hmm. You have to get out and open. Mm -hmm. Or is that similar to the group that um, has worked with Kindred, the, the external group that's helped with your discussions, or is it a really different type of I'm sorry. development? Um, I don't know who the, um, the person is. I mean, but it's Teach to Learn, if you can, um, you know, look up a other questions, comments? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you all for being here. It's a great collection of talent. And I think you absolutely appreciate it. Um, I want to go back to something that Ms. Washington said. Did you see all these college students who don't want to be teachers? They have a hundred other things that they were remedying first. And I'm wondering if there's any ideas about things we can change to make more you know, people want to be teachers and to find teachers in other places. Well, I, I really think, again, uh, having taught kindergarten, ideas begin at four and five years of age. And I think it's never too early to begin talking with children about uh, becoming a teacher. Um, <clears throat> we find uh, uh, the other thing, too, and unfortunately, this focuses on the financial the financial support for students uh, to a great degree is in the technologies, which is important, and the sciences. We 
have to have all of that. But again, scientists can't become scientists until they learn how to read and write. <laughs> so it still is important for somehow, uh, uh, I, I guess it's a societal issue as well as a financial issue as well as an academic issue. We've just got to encourage more young people to consider going into the education field. Uh, uh, someone was met when well, you were mentioning Howard. Uh, the 105 uh, historically black colleges and universities, of which Bowie is one, all began as teaching institutions. And their purpose uh, back in the uh, mid-1800s, uh, when uh, many of them started, was to teach newly freed slaves who had not been able to learn to read and write because they would have been killed had they done so. So traditionally, these colleges were teaching institutions, but again, as time has changed, the focus has changed. So we've just, it's a matter, it's almost like marketing. Uh, I, I had an opportunity in one of my 13 careers to, uh, <laughs> to, to work with, with Coca-Cola and my thought was I, I work with market development managers to start uh, summer camps for children. But my thought was that unless you lived under a rock all your life, everybody has seen or heard of Coca-Cola. And if Coca-Cola spends as much time developing marketing foci, then certainly things like education and teaching need to look at how we can sell that concept to more young people. But it really is critical. We have teachers are are the, the core uh, of children learning and of course we've got to have good teachers, teachers who understand empathy, teachers who are committed to teaching all children. This is the film, Teach Us All. Yeah. That, that's, that's what it's about. It just as, as another little caveat, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about some wonderful experiences I have had uh, in South Dakota. I've been working with school systems and uh, whatnot there for, I guess, eight, nine, 10, 11 years. But one of the things that they have begun to do, because Native children uh, are, have uh, serious issues, even yes. to a greater degree sometimes than some of the issues we've talked about. Yeah. But there's a group uh, that's affiliated with the State Department of Education who has begun to work with the tribal elders to help them understand what some of the cultural issues are and to help the elders understand what they can do to support academics among the children. Yeah. So I think that approach, again, we talk about empathy. It's all about understanding, all about learning about something that you didn't know anything about yeah. because you can't work with people that you don't know. Yeah. And you really, it, 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 it's an effort, and it's a wonderful effort. And I, I feel so, so enriched having learned as much as I did about the Native American culture. Yeah. 
and it's that's the kind of attitude that I think we're just all going to have to take so that all of our children will learn. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because one of the things in you mentioned Native communities, I mean, this is where one of these issues where I push back on integration. We have to be honest. There's two ways we've used integration. The first way we've used integration, as the civil rights activists did, was the only way you could use it to get resources. Because you knew that this Jim Crow school board was never going to give it to you. The other way we've used integration is not been used by any minority group. It's been used by white people of any different time, because the term white has changed since 1640s. At any given time, integration has been used as a way to destroy cultures. If you're talking to somebody who is in the, you know, the, the Sioux, Sioux reservations in South Dakota, they'll tell you what integration looked like. Integration was a boarding school where they took native kids from their communities. No, these are people who are already taken from their lands, often thousands of miles away if you're Cherokee, hundreds of miles away if you're Sioux. And now you're taking the kids away and you put them in a boarding school and the purpose is, to use the term, kill the Indian to save the man. If you talk to a native, somebody from any tribe, Cherokee Nation, whatever, talk about integration, the first thing they'll look at you and say, no, we are not interested in that. What we want is self-determination. What we want is to be able to control our education. What we want are the resources that um, you, Uncle Sam, were supposed to give us as part of these treaties. And this is one reason why we, ha if we're going to talk about integration, we may even, we have to talk about, I will agree, we have to talk about this thing differently. That is, if you talk to too many communities, integration means the destruction of their cultures. Integration means Chavez Ravine. Um, if you're from Los Angeles, Chavez Ravine was a native, was a area for, that was settled by Latinos, by Mexicans, was part of, Me which California was part of Mexico, destroyed and integrated into the rest of Los Angeles in the form of Dodger Stadium. So this, we destroy, and we have to go from making one culture that says, hey, you know, it looks like this to a bounty of cultures that are all equally valid and worthy. And which gets to teaching, which is, you know, by the way, you know, um, you know this transfer transition to teaching, I think... I think we look at the culture of teaching. If you, there's two, there's two ways of doing it. The traditional approach is, oh, teaching is going to be so hard, and you're working in these communities, and you're going to fight so hard to educate these kids. And then, of course, you have the reform community, which I'm a part of, who says teachers can cha are champions, and they can power through everything. And I go, wait a minute, and you're going to burn these kids, and you're going to burn these 23-year-olds out by the age of 30, and it has happened over and over and over again. And we need to change it to a culture of like any other profession where 
hey, on one hand, you are doing service for children. This is a service culture and a service profession. And you're serving the most vulnerable children and you must serve them well. But we must also treat it as a profession, which means instead of giving you a pension that only comes due, that's only really good after 20 years, and even then, if you, the longer you stay, it doesn't really work out that well for you. And say, oh yeah, the only way you can get more money is you get a degree, and more degrees, and more degrees, and more degrees, and more degrees, that may not actually have any value in teaching children, and the hardest to teach children, we need to go and say, hey, if you're doing great work, here you get, if you're doing great work, I don't care wh how long you've been in the profession, Here's some money. Here's a, you know, as somebody said, a backpack of money. I was like, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, why not? Two hundred. Why shouldn't a teacher make two hundred thousand dollars a year? Why shouldn't they? If they're doing great work, I have no problem with that. They should be making half a mil. Uh, listen, there's some teachers I've met. They should be making half a million. They should be. They should be on the Forbes 400. Let's get. <laughs> they should be getting paid. They're doing something I can't do. I'm being real. Sean, this, this is an area where you and I agree. I want to say one thing about that. I'm educated. I've told an urban, I've told a rural, I've told overseas, I've told in America, I'm currently in Prince George's County. And I'm a member of this organization that's not passionate to get more teachers that look like me in front of students. We know that 70% of our student population will be minority. 70% of our teachers are not. So we have to fix that. And in order for us to get the students I teach, I'm a university teacher for 17 years. And my teachers, my students will tell me, we talk about career professional. I want to be a teacher because all the work we do. I want to be a teacher because I want to do what you did. I want to be a teacher because you do not make money. You drive a Chevy Cruise. And I was like, oh. <laughs> hey. Thank you. 
start with that one I have my own thoughts and the answer I'll, and I'll make the simple word is yes 
But yeah, but yeah, the federal. Yeah, I mean, I traditionally the federal government has been the institution which is promoting civil rights in education. I think it's indispensable. Um, you know, as we speak right now, do I want Betsy DeVos to have more power? No. Um, but I think as in the long term, we have to have a strong federal role that's really aimed at promoting equity. Uh, because the, the federal government can have the, the national perspective, it can get beyond kind of the, the NIMBY questions and, and go to uh, protecting civil rights. Yeah. The danger is when the federal government instead tries to uh, mm -hmm. promote other ideas that aren't connected with, with equity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had, I guess, a couple of experiences in, in that area. And when you, you were mentioning uh, President Eisenhower, uh, the, we talked about that often, those of us who were kind of involved in that. And uh, the, I, I think the uh, major thought was that Eisenhower was put off by this <coughs> southern governor who refused to adhere to the decision of the Supreme Court. And uh, he had, uh, President Eisenhower had had a conversation with Governor Faubus, and he thought Governor Faubus had agreed to comply and to uh, go along with the order from the Supreme Court. Not so. So when the governor defied him, the, uh, Eisenhower said that was the last straw. And that's when he sent the 1,200 troops into Little Rock to assist the uh, students. My personal experience, back in the 70s, I worked with a Title I program. And I worked for a while uh, one summer uh, in the Department of Education. And the positive that I saw then was that uh, the federal government's role was to make sure the Title I funds were used to supplement and not supplant, supplant uh, education programs. Unfortunately, in some cases, the funds were being used to, uh, to fund what the local school system was supposed to have funded. And of course, Title I funds were used to provide extra services to those students who needed it. So that was my experience, and I agree when it, some things have changed. <laughs> And uh, I, I think when it's a, a situation where the government is monitoring to make sure that uh, equity is experienced in school system, that's a good thing. Otherwise, not so. We're going to hear from Tanya Clayhouse actually first thing tomorrow morning, and she can speak a little bit more to the federal policy role. And I know we've gone way over time, so please join me in thanking our wonderful panel tonight. Listen to the Dropout Nation family of podcasts. Also, read Dropout Nation every day for your news and commentary on the reform of American public education. And listen up for the new Dropout Nation podcast debuting in December. This is Dropout Nation. I'm Rashawn Biddle. You have a great weekend. <laughs>